A reminder too of uh, what we saw last um, time when we looked at specific, specifically at the life of Abraham and Sarah. What we saw was that the Lord ensures his covenant promises are fulfilled despite all the circumstances that threaten to undo them. We saw there was this repeating pattern through the life of Abraham. The Lord gives his promise. Something happens that seems, humanly speaking, to, to make that promise impossible. And then the Lord shows his faithfulness uh, again and again. What we saw was actually the Lord deliberately brought about those circumstances that made the promises seem impossible in order to demonstrate his commitment to the covenant. And the aim of all this was to produce faith. Faith in Abraham and Sarah. Faith in the Israelites first hearing this story and faith in us as we read it today. We could say that this is the most vital need we have, to be people of faith. It's by faith that we discard all of our self-sufficiency and we fall on the sufficiency of God. It's by faith we receive the justifying grace of God that cleanses us from our sin in Jesus Christ. It's by faith that we are enabled to take hold of the promises of God and to have the, the confidence, to have the security that then enables us to step out in confidence and obey, to say, not my will but your will be done. In this sense, the whole Old Testament story is showing that God's promises depend on him, not on us. Well, the account of Jacob and Esau continues to teach us this lesson, particularly as Paul shows us in Romans 9 as he comments on this story, Romans 9, 10 to 16. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The doctrine of election, which Paul is drawing on here, it's not an easy one for us to accept. Put simply, it means two things. Firstly, God chooses us. We do not choose him. If you're a Christian... It's not because you decided it would be a good idea to believe in Jesus, but because he set his love upon you. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, he opened your eyes to see the beauty and glory of Christ. And by grace, he gave you the gift of repentance and faith. Now, our choice to believe was a free choice, but it's only because he first set us free from our slavery to sin. It's because he shone the light of the gospel into our dark hearts and minds. 
So firstly, election means God chose us, we didn't choose him. Secondly, it means that not all are chosen. The Father freely and unconditionally chose before the foundation of the world those whose names would be in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus put it this way, many are called but few are chosen. Now this was said in in his conclusion to one of his parables of a wedding feast in which the rich and respectable people rejected the invitation and instead people on the street were gathered in. One man, who was not wearing the correct wedding garment, was thrown out. So in that story, many were called, but few were chosen. So the second aspect of the doctrine of election is that not all are chosen. Now, we we may not like the first aspect of election because it takes away our self-sufficient desire to contribute something, even if tiny, to our salvation. We probably don't like the second aspect of election because we feel it's not fair. Why choose me and not the bloke next door? Why choose one brother and not the twin? Now, this, of course, is only a problem if all human beings in some way deserve to be chosen or want to be redeemed and God, in only choosing some, is ignoring this or overriding this by sending people to hell who don't actually want to go there or don't deserve it. But we know that's not the case. If God was to give in to our demands to be completely fair and equal in how he treats everyone and give everyone exactly what they deserved, then no one would be saved. Election isn't about fairness, it's about grace. It is unfair, but the unfairness is directed towards those whom he chooses because he generously chooses not to give us the wrath we deserve. Instead, he gives it to Jesus at the cross. God is not obligated to choose anyone, but the fact that he does and the fact that we may know by faith that he has set his electing love upon us should be cause for great thankfulness and rejoicing. As Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. God wants us to celebrate the fact he has chosen us, not to argue with him about the reason or the mechanics of it. Why did God choose some and not all? On one level that's something in the mystery of his sovereign wisdom that we can't grasp and we have no right to demand that he explain. But on another level, Paul tells us that there is something very important that God is saying to us in this as illustrated by these two brothers. He says it was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What is God's purpose of election? Well, that goes right back to the promise to Abraham. He chose Abraham, didn't choose other people, 
just chose the one man Abraham and he stated his purpose in that choice that ultimately all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. That's something that he would accomplish by his sovereign hand. It would be for the praise of his glorious grace when every creature will see and acknowledge that it's all been his work, not ours. As Grant Thorpe once said, the one who does the work gets the glory. In the end, all glory will be directed to God the Father through Jesus Christ because he's the one who does the work. So, God gave Rebecca two boys, twin boys, and he decided that it would be through one of these twins and not the other that the promise would be passed on. And Paul emphasises this by saying that Rebecca had conceived children by one man. No one could suggest that it was maybe because they had a different mother or a different father. And to reinforce this purpose, God also decrees that the promise would not go through the older, stronger one, but through the younger, weaker one. Contrary to how people would have thought or expected, not the firstborn son, not the one who's able to prove himself by his hunting prowess and who, as we've heard, was his father's favoured son but through the younger son, who's quiet and reserved. He dwells in tents. What that meant was he hangs out with the women, doing things like cooking and things traditionally, culturally ascribed to women of the day. If these two sons had been placed side by side and anyone was asked, which of these two boys is most likely to be the one chosen to carry out this ambitious, world-changing mission of becoming a great nation and taking God's blessing to every nation on earth, well, they would have picked Esau, the strong go-getter. That's exactly why God chooses the shy, retiring Jacob. We're told in 1 Corinthians that this is actually how he works normally. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now I can, I can identify a bit with Jacob in his introversion. I'm an introvert by nature. I too would have been happier living in tents, cooking stew, than out in the field hunting. I know what it can be like to be overlooked by the world because I don't fit a certain mould of the motivated, competent leader. But I can't even claim my weakness in the eyes of the world 
as a virtue. God didn't choose us because he thinks introverts are better than extroverts. He chose the foolish, weak, low and despised in order to shame the wise and the strong. He chooses the weak explicitly to demolish the haughtiness and pride of sinful human beings who want to exalt themselves to become equal with or even greater than God himself by boasting in their self-sufficiency. It's precisely because we value the strong that he chooses the weak. It's because we value the clever that he chooses the foolish. It's because we value those who are something that he chooses those who are nothing. So he chose Jacob and the nation that would come from him, the nation of Israel, over and against Esau and the nation that would come from him, known as Edom. Uh, Esau, the name Esau means hairy, which is why he was called hairy when he was born. Uh, Edom means, is from the word meaning red. Um, so he was a red man and a hairy man and the nation that came from him was known as Edom. Nothing to do with cheese. So he chose Jacob over Edom to shame those who think great and powerful nations are the most significant factor in shaping the ultimate destiny of human beings. And this is the meaning of Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a quotation from Micah chapter 1. He's not speaking here of the individual men themselves. The Lord didn't have a personal hatred for Esau. He's speaking of the nations of which they would be the fathers. He chose Israel, not Edom. He hated and rejected all that Edom re- represented as an idolatrous, arrogant, violent nation. But he had set his covenant love upon Israel, not because they were any better than Edom, but because his purpose of election still stood to demonstrate his patient Mercy and loving kindness to rebellious, stubborn sinners. We've recently celebrated Christmas in which we saw the great God and King of the universe enter the creation as a weak, vulnerable child, born to a poor family, living in a despised part of a country that was small and weak, compared to all the superpowers that surrounded them at the time. His mission in life was to set his face to the cross, where he hung, weak, despised, rejected. He became nothing as he bore our sin. God the Son not only chooses the weak, the foolish, the nothing, he chose to become weak, and foolish and nothing for our sake, so that we might become the Father's treasured, precious and honoured children. We need to remember that whenever we want Christianity and the church to become accepted and popular and respected in the world. The moment we become great and powerful and influential in worldly terms, we've forsaken the very spirit of what Jesus 
came to accomplish. Whenever we can say to the world, look at us, see how great we are, see what a good job we're doing, we're inviting them to give glory to us instead of to our Father who's in heaven. The greatest honour that we can know is to be weak and foolish and nothing because in being that we will bring glory to the one who's redeemed us. Now Esau is critiqued and rightfully so in the scriptures for despising his birthright. As firstborn son, both culturally and spiritually, he had the responsibility and the privilege of being the heir, the one who would take over the role of his father as the head, as the protector, as the provider of his household. And so we're told in Hebrews, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. But this warning shouldn't distract us from seeing that Jacob's character was just as problematic. We might say, what kind of person would sell their inheritance for a pot of lentil stew? But we might just as much ask, what kind of person would demand his own hungry, tired, emotionally weak brother's inheritance in exchange for lentils? Now maybe Esau thought this was a joke, that his brother wouldn't be so malicious as to take his comment seriously of what use is a birthright to me now. But Jacob was true to his name. His name means one who supplants or deceives. He used deception to do in reality what him holding his brother's heel as they came out of the wound symbolised, pulling his brother back so that he could take his place. Now something we should notice through all these stories, and this one in particular, is how a person's word is binding. The scriptures present a godly person as one who carefully chooses their words, who knows that God will hold them to what they say. And so they avoid speaking flippantly about important things, especially the plans of God. Our words don't have power in the way that God's words do. We can't uh, call things into existence like he does. But our words are significant because we speak because we're made in the image of the God who speaks. And so James 3 compares the tongue to a small rudder that steers a great ship or, as we all sadly know at this time, a small flame turns into a great bushfire. From a purely human level, it was hastily spoken and mistaken words that determined the course of history in regards to Israel, which son would receive the blessing. Yet from the perspective of God, this was already determined, as we saw, by him before they even spoke. Esau's rash promise to give Jacob his birthright, even though it may have been said jokingly, was in God's sovereignty and outworking of the word of God given before they were even born. And Isaac's blessing on Jacob, once given, couldn't be revoked, even though it was technically a mistake. 
And even though deception was used, Jacob couldn't say, sorry, let's do this again. He'd given his word. But God sovereignly, sorry, Isaac had given his word and he couldn't retract it. God's, God sovereignly used the sinfulness of Jacob to bring about his, God's purpose in election. He could have determined, God could have determined that this promise was passed on to the next generation harmoniously, without family conflict, with everyone agreeing with each other's words. But he chose to make his sovereignty known in that even in the midst of human deceit and conflict, his purpose would be accomplished because it's by grace, not by works. The grace of God is clearly seen in Jacob's encounter with the Lord at Bethel. This is the defining moment for Jacob. Before this, we've only seen, been able to observe the Lord at work in the background in Jacob's life. Jacob has only heard the words of his brother and his mother and his father, words largely of anger and deception and disappointment. But now he encounters the Lord in person. And for him, the pieces of the puzzle start to fall into place. Now he sees that his destiny is not in his hands or in the hands of others, but in the Lord's. And it's time for him to acknowledge that. Now Bethel means house of God. Pretty good name for a church, I think. To be in the house of God is to be in his presence, to know him, to know that he is with you and you are with him. And this, in essence, was the Lord's words to Jacob. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you. It is this pledge of the Lord's presence to Jacob that enables Jacob then to say, then the Lord shall be my God. What kind of God makes this kind of commitment to a man like Jacob, a cheater, both by name and by character? Well, this is the promise-making, the promise-keeping, covenant God who operates by grace and mercy, not giving us what we deserve, but in grace giving us what we don't deserve. This is the God who chooses us from before we're born and who determines to set his favour upon us, whose grace is shown to be all more glorious when seen in contrast to our sin and our selfish foolishness. This is the God who opens heaven, not so that we might climb our way up, but so that he himself may come down to us. In Jacob's dream of this ladder going into heaven, he saw the Lord. Uh, in the ESV it says, at the top of it, which makes it sound like the Lord's up there in heaven at the top of the ladder. But a better translation is actually, he saw the Lord standing beside him. There was Jacob on, run, on the run from his brother, fearing for his life, knowing the guilt and shame of all that he'd done, all the deception, all the deceit. And 
heaven opens and the Lord comes down and meets him where he is and stands right beside him and reinforces the promises. Now when Jesus was speaking to his first disciples, one of his first disciples, Nathaniel, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's a clear reference here to Jacob's dream. And Jesus here himself says that he is the ladder. He is the means by which the covenant God reaches down, in fact comes down from heaven to earth to embrace his people, to keep his covenant promises. Now what's fascinating about Jesus' use of this story to describe himself is what he said of Nathanael just a few moments earlier. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. As we'll see next week, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, meaning he strives, he wrestles with God. And these in-person encounters with God transform him from a person known for his deceit to a person known for his face-to-face interaction with God. This, Jesus is saying to Nathanael, is what happens to anyone who encounters God face-to-face in Jesus Christ. When we come to him, we see heaven opened. We see God himself step into our situation. We see ourselves transformed. We're no longer seen by God as sinners, as those full of deceit and deception, but we're seen as righteous, as justified, one in whom there is no deceit. That's how our Heavenly Father sees us in Jesus Christ. So our response to the arrival of the living God in the person of Jesus is modelled to us by Jacob. With him we can say, because God will be with me, then the Lord shall be my God. With him, we can look at the times and the places of our encounters with him and testify to his presence with us, which is what Jacob was doing by setting up the stone as a memorial and calling that place Bethel, the house of God. And did you notice Jacob's tithe? This isn't about how much money we put in the offering bag. You might recall when we saw Abraham's interaction with Melchizedek that he gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he had. And it, in this, that culture, this, a tithe was an indication that the person to whom you're giving it is your sovereign, your lord, your protector, the one to whom you pledge your allegiance. So like his grandfather, Jacob, soon to be Israel, was pledging allegiance to the Lord as his sovereign. No longer was his destiny in his hands, but in the Lord's. And so like Jacob, we're called to do the same. We're called to declare Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my sovereign, is our sovereign, to to devote our lives to his service with the same confidence that Jacob had that he will be with us. Let's pray.
Father, we see in the face of Jesus Christ that you have come to us. We are just like Jacob in so many ways, in our deceit, in our running from you, in our refusal to acknowledge who we truly are, in our unwillingness to accept uh, who you are and what your plan is for us. But in Jesus Christ you have come to us and met us where we are. You have removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. You've uh, woken us up from our sleep of death and you've set us on our feet and given us an identity and a name. Father, we pray that as Jacob knew this confidence that you are the Lord his God, that we too might know you are our God and you will be with us in all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song, a song that reflects this a gracious, loving election of God. You loved us before we loved you.